Hello everyone, welcome to the Melting Pot podcast. I'm your host Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at dominicmonkhouse.com. Today I'm talking to Roland Sieberlink, based in Silicon Valley, works with tech startups predominantly based over there, author of a new book called Scaling Silicon Valley Style. Roland and I are chatting today. He's in Sweden and I'm in the UK. There were some technical glitches that hopefully we'll take out of the audio while we're editing. But what do Roland and I talk about today? Well, he talks about his three scale-up experiences. So he started off launching the first consumer broadband business in telecom in Belgium. Telnet grew from eight to 1,200 employees in three years. Absolutely phenomenal journey. And he goes on to talk about what he learned from there, what he wouldn't do again. Talks about his ex- the experiences at the next two scale-ups. Talks about some of the things that he does with his clients what he would do if he went back in time and gives us some book recommendations as well. Fantastic. Great to talk to Roland today. Hope you enjoy our chat. My name is Roland Siebling and I'm uh, what I call a scale-up ally for tech founders. So I help founders of technology companies uh, through the scaling phase, typically starting from right after they reach product market fit and then all the way until they reach product market dominance. And as you can imagine, that's a long and arduous journey. And my job is to help them see through that journey and stay in power and in uh, in charge of their company for as long as they like. And where are your clients typically found? Where are you and where are they? I'm uh, based in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is, of course, the mecca for technology companies. And my clients are both in the Bay Area, but also in other areas around the world. Um, So about a third of my clients is in the Bay Area itself. They also have a third in other U.S. locations and then a third internationally, primarily Europe and in Australia. And how many clients at a time do you find yourself able to work with? Typically around 10. Uh, Some of them will be relatively small in terms of a single CEO or a very early starting team that I work with, typically uh, because I see a lot of potential in them. But the bulk of it is full teams. Sometimes there's one that will have multiple teams as they're trying to actually roll out uh, our methodology across multiple business units if they've grown really fast. Fab. So before we get on to picking your brains on your methodology, how do you find yourself in this position? Because you, you're here because you've been on this journey multiple times yourself. So perhaps you could... Yeah. <laughs> I was very lucky to have been living through this journey on the inside of a company three times in a row. So in my 20s, I uh, was in Belgium. This was in the time of the big telecom liberalization. And I joined the first challenger to the old telecom monopoly, Belgacom, as the employee number eight. And within three years, it was about 1,100 people. And I was also very lucky because the bulk of people were focused on building a secondary telephony network. 
but I was actually running with an engineering colleague of mine, the then completely new found internet department. We were both in our 20s and we were very lucky that nobody over 30 dared touch that newfangled thing. So we had a great opportunity to build a team of about 90 in, a, in two years time and uh, enjoyed 900% market growth year after year. <laughs> and so what was your position inside the business? I was the head of the business side and my engineering colleague was the head of the technology side. And what were the big challenges that you saw yourself overcoming? That where did, what were the lessons that you learned? I think the most interesting um, part of it in those days was that it felt like living in a movie that's on fast forward. So in the four years that I was with that company, we had also four CEOs, we had seven strategies, we had probably 20 different big goals that we were going for different projects. And so what normally takes five to seven years to come to fruition would take half a year or maximum a year. So you could see almost in real time what the effect of great leadership or great management was. As in most companies, you know, these people, when they're not too good, they tend to get out before the results of their work become clear. And I learned a lot about that, uh, both what to do, but also especially what not to do in those scaling situations. What was one of your not to do's? I think one mistake many scale-up companies make, and they did as well, was to hire people from very established organizations as executives, because they assumed that these people would bring structure and reliability to the organization. And what was very clear was that people that had all their lives been in very stable and mature organizations were not suited for the work of a scale-up company that is still uh, trying to find its way in the marketplace, still trying to figure out very basic things. And so this was my first inside, I think that it's not just that there is a startup against a mature company. You do not turn directly from a startup into an established company. There's this entire middle phase that is almost as different from a startup and from a mature company as adolescence is from being a kid and being a mature adult. It's its own phase. It has its own rules, its own prescriptions. And I think the big mistake people make is that they fight constantly over, are we a startup or do we want to be professional? And then professional is often code for bureaucratic and overly spending, let's say, right? And I've really found that there's other prescriptions that are the best solution in this case. It's not black and white. There's a whole area of gray in between. Do you think there are types of people who do, so obviously you've got these executives who've been in large companies Mm-hmm. you're bringing them into your startup scale-up and, and there's mm-hmm. a mismatch. Is it sort of interpersonal skills? Is it their mental model? What, what makes it a difficult transition? Because I've seen exactly the same thing myself. I think everyone that has been successful in life typically likes to stick with the things that made them successful. It's very difficult for us humans to give up what made us successful and learn again what made us, makes us successful in a new environment. So I do think it's a combination of mental model, of experience, of being used to having a certain amount of resources, or if you're a founder, being used to doing everything yourself, uh-huh. right? And not figuring out situationally, in this situation, what is the best way of operating? And so I, I always contrast the scale-up stage 
both with the startup stage and with the incumbent stage or the mature company stage, if you will, because both of these mental models are not suited for the scale-up stage. Uh, the founder who likes to keep doing everything themselves, I have horror stories about companies that sign uh, up to a thousand contracts a year, every salesperson hammering on the door of the CEO who insists on personally signing and renegotiating every single contract that comes through the door. <laughs> so you can imagine the effect that has on sales. Yes. I also have horror stories of a very um, mature uh, company executives that as a first step, they hire a team of 50, then they want to bring in the consultants. Uh, these consultants write processes of 50 pages and all of that goes to a team of just two workers that are actually supposed to then actually perform all the work. I, 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 I'm, I'm laughing because I see exactly the same thing. The, mm -hmm. uh, I see it particularly uh, if I'm interviewing uh, sales, sales directors for, for these types of organizations. And often to sales directors who've been in large companies, I say, look, there's a blank sheet of paper. Mm a million pounds of gross profit what do you do and nine out of ten of them just don't even understand the question mm -hmm. they can go into a big company and there's a process and they can they can marginally change the big company mm -hmm. process. but what they can't do is they can't start from the bottom and make something up or iterate something significantly in a short space of time and i think what you're saying is you've got the founder who won't give up mm -hmm. and then a big company guy who's who's more uh, it, well, I think that sort of reliance on resources is, mm -hmm. it's like, what's the, uh, what, what's the best we can do as fast as we can with a few, it, it's sort of that, um, actually I either like, you know, street fighting or, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, there's a, there's a people who enjoy that fixing it and make doing, uh, I don't know, sort of uh, batting above your weight or punching above your weight. There's, there's a mentality, uh, good enough. And then mm -hmm. actually not being, um, but being able to give up on it tomorrow and change it for something better, so that not having not being emotionally attached to uh, to yesterday's yesterday's good idea. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so then, what what would in, in that in that if that was a if that was a bad thing, what was what was one of the things that you you took from that first experience and thought, okay, this is something I'm going to repeat forever. I love the potential of both making a company much more robust while keeping the entrepreneurial zeal alive. And that really became my mission in life to try and find that um, squaring the circle, if you will, or the golden intersection between that robustness and still having a feeling like this is a very entrepreneurial company where you can actually make things happen and you don't drown in the rules and in the little boxes and all the, all the bureaucracy that, that all, any mature organization ultimately, um, you know, gets to. How, how, do you in, how do you inoculate your, the scale-ups that you work with against, against bureaucracy, other than stopping them hiring people from big companies? <laughs> well, that's number one, probably. But uh, <laughs> um, I would say that um, I always come back to this. It's not a black and white. It finds the gray zone in the middle. Um, and so I do believe that they should have processes in place because of the aspect of wanting to make the business more repeatable. But the processes I recommend are maximum one page and there are a number of checkboxes, just like pilots have a checklist in a, in a, for every flight that they start. 
that should be enough because that ensures it's actually being used and it's only used for the 80% of cases that is standard. You uh-huh. do not want to catch every single exception in a process so that the document turns into a 50-page manual because you do not want to prematurely optimize your company for as if it's run by idiots. Now, yeah. ultimately it will, but... It's, I think, keeping uh, trust in the people and keeping a very high standard for the kind of people you want to hire and the kind of people you want to promote. In other words, keeping that A player um, the standard alive and, uh, and very um, uh, universal across the company is actually the precondition for not turning it into a bureaucracy because for me, a bureaucracy is the antithesis of trust. Yes, and and, and all, it's that it's that edge case, isn't it? It's that somebody's done something that we don't agree with, mm-hmm. but let's not write a process. Let's not have let's not have a policy. Let's not have a thing that everyone has to learn, because actually the other ninety eight percent of people didn't do that. So yes. it's not it's not normal. We don't have to legislate against it. We just have to take some sort of short term corrective action. Tell everybody that that's not what we want them to do. Mm-hmm. This person says, sorry, I won't do it again. But then we don't need to write a manual. And of course, you need, you need the trust in that person, but you also need the collective trust in the organization doing the right thing. And for that, I do think it's really important to have a set of solid values that are not just on a sheet on the wall, but you actually live them. And you've taken some tough decisions in order to stick with your values. For example, you forwent a major customer or a major investor uh, because they ultimately didn't fit with your values. That creates the trust in the organization that you will actually live along your values. And values are just a tool to let people make the right decisions by themselves so that you don't have to prescribe everything as a manager or a leader. Yeah. So what do you do with clients to help them define their values? Because every company will have them, but often not explicit. And so go through a process. Most people ask me in the beginning, can you help me draw up the values? And first I will correct them a little bit and say it's maybe less about drawing up the values, even less so about defining the values, but more about discovering your values. The values you already have, the values that drive your day-to-day decisions, but that are just very implicit to you, are really the criteria by which you judge the people in your organization. So if you can draw them out of your head and if you can discover what your values truly are, then it becomes much easier for other people in the organization to follow those values and on that basis for you to trust them more. Yes. And do you have any exercises that you do to try and do that discovery? Mm -hmm. I have two different ones. One is an exercise that Jim Collins recommended in a famous article about um, managing the company's core ideology, of which the core values are a part. And he basically says, why don't you imagine you're opening a new office of your company in a very far away place that has no ability to be in contact with you all the time? It's actually called Mission to Mars, so that Uh people imagine that it's on a faraway planet that has you know 15 minutes or longer time lag for every single bit of communication that would come through so in other words you have to trust the people to do the right job the question then is who would you send and they ask every person in the team individually to draw up a list of like five to seven people they like in the organization that they would send to build out that new team 
And then also individually, they ask each of these people to draw up why would they send that person? What is it that's specific about that particular employee that would make you trust them that they would do the right thing? And for some, they will say they always are true to their word. For others, they would say he's just extremely performance. For others, you would say, you know, she is caring. And there's many other, other possibilities, of course. But those things are ultimately, you bring those reasons together. And those reasons are typically the actual values of the organization as it really is, not the aspirational values that they have on the wall, but how they actually behave. And sometimes these are completely opposite to the values that are on the wall. I'll tell you one story of a client that has on their list on the wall, it says getting things done. But you talk to all the people in the company and they say our real value is we want everything to be perfect. <laughs> so it's the polar opposite because we delay and we reiterate and we come back to it, things again and again and again before it's perfect. And only then can we get things done. And the actual description of the value on the wall says literally don't wait until it's perfect. So that's clearly an aspirational value. They'd like to be less perfectionists, but maybe in those cases, it's better to just embrace who you are rather than trying to be different. Absolutely. I've worked with an organization who had, there was a big thing on the, oh no, it was a value that they didn't have. I, I felt that they were, they were very frugal mm -hmm. um, and that wasn't on their list of values, but it absolutely was through the pore of the organization was a frugality. And it's like, mm -hmm. why are you afraid of having this as a value? This isn't mm -hmm. not a negative thing at all. You look at everything that you do very, very um, mm -hmm. with great detail and you make measured decisions. It's how you are. Put it on the wall. Yeah, exactly. And you talked about A players. How do you, what's your definition of A player and how do you help clients go about finding them and keeping them? I try to give clients a clearer definition first to your question. I define an A player as someone who both really fits the culture of the company, call it the values of the company, but who also outperforms the average of their position. And so it has to have the two components. If you do not have these explicit components, then typically people will define an A player as someone they like. That has a lot of risks in terms of diversity of hiring, in terms of creating a lot of blind spots. If you only hire people that look and talk and think like yourself, you may get along with them better, but it's also very likely that you will miss major things in your discussions of management. What also happens with early stage scale-ups is that really they have no clear performance objectives defined. And that means that the performance dimension, are they outperforming, is again just a matter of opinion of the CEO or the founder or whoever is in charge. And very often they also equate that they perform well with, well, do I like them? So we have to move away from this pure subjective standard of, do I like them? Do I get along with them? We have to start making it explicitly about, well, we have some culture defined, we have some values defined, maybe a purpose that we all believe in, does that person fit with those values and that purpose? And then I often stress, and that's the only thing that should matter in terms of fit, right? So if they live the values and they believe in the purpose, then why would you care where they are from or who they like or 
where they went to school, if they also perform, if they can actually live up to the standards that you set for that function and outperform it, then that's a true A player. Okay. And when you talk about performance, do you mean in absolute terms for that job in the world? Or do you mean in that organization? It's a very good question. And I wouldn't give a 100% always right answer because sometimes people are just very constrained in what people they can hire for a position. For example, in engineering, that's a typical complaint in many of the tech companies I work with. But generally, you would still aspire to find someone who outperforms at least the average in that position across the industry, not just in the company. Okay. So you could have 100% A players in the business. That would be the goal. Absolutely. So I definitely do not advise people to do forced rankings where automatically, if you have more people outperforming than others, go into the D bucket or something like that. I think that's been proven to not work, to create mistrust in the organization, to give people incentives to, to throw their colleagues um, on, under, um, how do you say? Uh, under the bus. Under the bus, exactly. Yes. Yeah. I was thinking of Facebook as I thought, I thought about it because they used that quote very well last week. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the first ranking algorithms does not work. Indeed, to your point, the goal is to ultimately have 100% A players in the organization, but not by lowering your standards. By constantly vetting and revetting, is everyone still a good fit and living up to the standards and outperforming those? Are we happy to know that these people that we have are actually over the average in our industry? And recently it came out that Netflix, also a famous tech company that has been working very strongly on its culture, has a very high standard for performance, and that is the manager should ask themselves, if this person left on their own accord, would I fight to keep them? And the rule is, if you wouldn't find to keep them, then you shouldn't keep them. Even if they don't want to go by themselves, <laughs> it's already too late. Then basically you should tell someone, well, I realized I wouldn't fight to keep you, so that's it. I'm sorry, you've had a good run, but I think we can do better. Yes, and... I have often that conversation with clients about that B player. Mm -hmm. you know, they're okay. They're solid. They're average performer. Isn't that okay? And I think what they're missing is that having a B player on the bus means that seat's taken up by somebody who could be an A player. Yes. And if it's in the earlier stage and people still have C players, maybe even D players on board of the bus, the other part they are missing is that these people frustrate the heck out of the A players. A players hate nothing worse than being forced to work with C players or D players. So you may very well run a risk of losing your best people just because you force them to work with people who are not performing or are not a good fit for the organization. Having said that, Dominique, I have also found that being very aggressive about, well, you need to get rid of all your D players, or let me rephrase that, you need to free up the future of all your D players is often too high a barrier for especially early stage uh, scale-ups. And so I often set an informal target that every CEO should make one key people decision every quarter. And that can be freeing up a future for someone. It could also be making a new hire. It could also be a rotation of responsibilities but there has to be one major impact on the executive team every quarter. And I found that that's often enough just to get a little bit of the dynamism in and to show people that change is possible 
while at the same time not creating an environment where everyone starts feeling unsafe and afraid for their job. Yes. And so you were, there you were in Belgium, sorry, taking you back on your um, yeah. <laughs> sort of chronological journey. We dived into some lessons from that. So you did deregulation in Belgium Telecom. Where did you, what was your next? It was uh, basically the launch of broadband internet was what we did in uh, Belgium primarily. So we launched the first broadband internet service for consumers back in 1996 in the whole of Europe. And um, I think we were very uh, lucky to have thought of this becoming a mass market product right away because at the time everything was marketed for what they would call the freaks or the hackers or the, <laughs> the geeks, right? And uh, we always knew that that was just a tiny part of the market. So by launching it from the outset as a real consumer product, a family product, it still has uh, the highest market share in Belgium and, uh, and the best margins in the market as well, I believe. And uh, yeah, that's something to be very proud of. After that, I moved to Switzerland first to do my MBA at uh, IMD in Lausanne. And then I uh, joined um, Swisscom in Zurich. That was more of an incumbent operator. And I was responsible for dealing with the aftermath of the botched IPO of their internet provider that was called Bluewin. And so I joined a little bit later, but it was still a scale-up journey because that company had also grown from like 10 people to, I think in that case, it was first 300 and then they merged with another department and soon it was 1,000 as well. Uh-huh. And there it was more a matter of, okay, how do we structure it a little bit more efficiently? How do we get out of the hype cycle and into robust operations? And realizing which businesses had actually a chance of survival and which were just distractions. The narrowing of the focus of the organization. Correct, yes. And so if you map that to the typical growth cycle of technology companies, I would say that that is the part that comes after the famous chasm that Jeffrey Moore refers to. So the move from the early market that is very sensitive to hype and new products and new announcements every month to the mainstream market that just wants something that works and that they have service for and training for and where everything is robustly rolled out but they don't necessarily need to see it change every month. Mm-hmm. And so what were the big takeaways from there? If focus is one, is there another, or is there a learn not to do? I think uh, what they did really well uh, on the positive side was to keep that new unit relatively isolated from the larger telecom provider that it was part of. And so it allowed it to make its own decisions and to innovate on its own pace and accord not being slowed down by the bureaucracy of the larger telecom company, or at least not enough to have a significant effect. If not, they would never have let uh, gotten the market leadership position and maintained it for so long. It's Uh, fascinating, isn't it, that the larger organization would have just, that white blood cells would have the inertia and the status or, I don't know, would kill it. People often refer to how crazy that is, but I think you, you have to realize that a large organization is large because it is defending a lot of business. And so it's only natural that their first order of business is to defend against any change that comes to that business. And any change also means a lot of new ideas within the company, employees that want to do something crazy. It's unfortunately the job of lots of these managers in these organizations to keep guiding the employees to what they've always done and just make sure there's not a lot of risk. And um, that may not be what the individual employee likes or wants, but it is, I think, the DNA of a large and mature organization, 
which is exactly why I think that hiring people that have only been in these environments is absolutely detrimental to a scale-up. The cycle, if you will, there are only four ways in which you can add value for your shareholders, for your investors, right? One is to increase the amount of future opportunities that you promise them. This is basically the irrational exuberance that investors would call it. The second is you uh, sell more, generate more businesses. That makes, of course, the company also more valuable. The third is you generate more efficiency, so you do the same business with less cost. And the fourth is you reduce the risk so that for the same amount of business, the risk goes lower and therefore the uh, investment is valued high. Those are the only four ways. And I think it's really mapped to the cycle of the growth of a company. An early stage startup that just has an idea sells 100% future opportunity to investors. There's nothing else. There's no sales yet. There's no significant cost yet, just future opportunity. And the risk is taken for granted because it is just an opportunity. Then over time, they start selling the product and then suddenly this focus of the investors starts shifting to the growth. How fast are you growing? How big of your market share? That's the territory of a scale-up. They are focused on growth and on capitalizing on that product market fit they have gained to then turn as much as possible into product market dominance, capture that market that they've discovered. It's only when that starts plateauing that suddenly the focus starts shifting to now how can we do the same, but with fewer costs, with less costs. Mm -hmm. So how can we now reduce the amount of people that work for these processes? How can we automate more? How can we just do everything more efficiently? Because the pie is no longer growing that fast, now we have to be more efficient. And it's only once they've wrung the sponge out so much, let's say, that it's harder to get to cost reduction, that it becomes such a stable organization. And now it's all about reducing risk. Can we identify things that are risky for us? Oh, there's this IT system that might explode on us, or there's this regulation that we need to counter, or a competitor we need to buy or perhaps destroy. And I think in a mature company, that's the stage you're in. Investors invest in a mature company because they want to study cash flow and study dividend. They do not invest in a mature company because they expect amazing growth opportunities. That's where the money would go to a scale-up. And unfortunately, each of us has only limited experience. So plucking a person from one stage of that whole life cycle and putting them in a completely different stage, in my mind, is usually unsuccessful. Aha, which is why you stay in the scale-up stage, because you've enjoyed it and been successful. Yes, and I have. Indeed, I've tried uh, to also be entrepreneur myself. I launched three companies and uh, two of them not so successful. One of them did exit. We sold it to a small Facebook competitor in um, 2011. Definitely not life-changing, but an interesting experience. And I got my uh, Silicon Valley credentials out of it a little bit. But ultimately, I found I'm much more fascinated with that phase after early product market fits. And I think I can contribute a lot more there than as yet another entrepreneur in the early stage. We have a lot of those, but what they do need is a bit more coaching and guidance for when their business grows really big and how can they stay in charge? And that's what I help them with. What was the last scale-up you were involved in? The last scale-up I was involved in personally was in Rocket Fuel. Uh, that was a early digital advertising combined with artificial intelligence startup. And I joined that when there were about 80 people, I believe. And again, there was 1,300 people three years later and had also had an IPO in 2013, um, the typical Silicon Valley story with the 
much oversubscribed IPO with a much higher price than people had anticipated. And then, of course, it went even higher and were secondary offerings. And over time, that uh, price collapsed again. And I think that's also um, a sign where sometimes these companies tend to go for uh, initial public offering, go for a stock exchange listing when they haven't quite built the robustness yet to ultimately support the expectations of public investors. As you were talking about the, the business cycle, they haven't yet got to the point where it's risk-free or that they're, they're about managing significant risk. Quite the contrary, there's, right? There's, usually there's, they, usually they don't even have the capability yet to estimate risks or even to predict with a relative amount of certainty what the revenues and the profits will be in the next quarter. Yeah. So you kind of need that basic skill before you can even start looking into risks to that, those numbers. Yes. So that last business there, were there any things that became sort of foundational in your methodology from the third experience? Uh, yes, I think um, that one really sketched out in detail to me what Jeffrey Moore writes about in his Crossing the Chasm and later books, how the early markets of visionaries and of innovators is very different from the mainstream market. So if you're selling to people that are in the early market, it is easy to get them excited about the technology per se. It's easy to come to them with a product that's maybe 80% finished, but not fully polished and where sometimes they need to take features into account that don't fully work yet, or there's not a manual for everything, let alone training. The early market, which is consisting of about 15% of the total potential market, is fine with that because they want to grab an early advantage over the competition. And so they're happy to take that opportunity. They are opportunity driven. Now, afterwards, you want to grow further. And then suddenly there's this plateau because you're applying the tactics that you've learned for your sales and marketing in the early markets. You're trying to apply it to the mainstream market. And guess what? The mainstream market needs to be talked to in a completely different way. I don't know, Dominic, if you've ever tried to get your parents or somebody of the previous generation to buy the newest model of smartphone or something like that. Actually, I would say probably, well, yes, but I, I even think that closer to home, I have sort of a natural affinity to new things and, I've, and I'm very tolerant of things that don't work. Right. Um, I, you know, I quite like beta software. I quite like, you know, I'm early adopter. If it, in fact, if it doesn't work, I'm more attracted to it. Yes. My wife, on the other hand, <laughs> you know, my wife's view is that everything should be a fridge. You know, yes. it should be boring and predictable and do exactly what you bought it to do. And if it doesn't do that 100% of the time, she gets very frustrated. So what does she say when you recommend the product to her? Oh, I can't recommend a product. It's just... You know, <laughs> phones just wants a phone that works just wants it to make calls all the time doesn't want it to crash doesn't need anything fancy we have different needs same with the car just wants it to work she has no interest in an electric car that adds there's complexity there how will i charge it will it run out of charge what right, right. we have stayed with diesel because <laughs> talk about proven technology right so <laughs> And that's just an example of what really happens at a macro level as well, where the mainstream market that your wife is in does not want to listen to referrals of the early market. 
they basically say, you're not a good recommender for me because I know the kind of stuff you like. I don't like the stuff you like. (laughs) And so they need to almost build up their entire marketing and sales strategy from scratch in order to um, build that mainstream market. And that often means starting to think afresh from thinking, what does that customer really need? What are new product features that we may not be excited about, but that customer really expects? For example, partnerships, for example, distributors that can also provide services. For example, additional manuals that nobody thinks they need, but the mainstream customers want to see manuals, right? Uh, So typically it involves a complete shift from the focus on the core technology and expanding that to working on what you would almost call the supplementary assets around the technology. Because that new market doesn't care that much about the core technology anymore. They just want it to be complete. And so now here you are, you've, you've done three scale-ups. How did you make the transition then from being on a scale-up team to coaching? What? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I probably first started recognizing that no matter what hat I had been wearing, and sometimes it was marketing, sometimes it was strategy, sometimes product, sometimes even customer success or quality or similar things, no matter what hat I had been wearing, I had always been in a position where I was talking to the CEO about how do we keep this company's zeal alive? How can we make it more robust without turning into a bureaucracy? And so that purpose, I think, was always there. And I probably was lucky in being able to talk to CEOs from a very early day just because I joined these companies so early. And so when Rocket Fuel started to divide up its business into separate business units or to be more responsive to the market, It was only natural for me to say, well, maybe I can help build those business units, not as a manager, but as a coach for each of them to help them come to terms with planning, with setting the quarterly goals or quarterly rocks, as we called them, but also the beginnings of strategy with all those teams that themselves were not that experienced in in managing a company yet. So I started off as an internal coach within Rocket Fuel with four business units in my portfolio, let's say. And after these had been launched and the company was quite successful, then it became a natural next step to also start offering services on the outside. And that's how I became a, an independent coach. Aha. Uh-huh. And you've got working with sort of 10 clients at the moment around the world. But, and we've talked a bit about some of the core tenets of your, your methodology, that, that sort of the people and focus and so on. What, what other legs to your stool do you have or what other core things have we not covered that Mm -hmm. I've really developed a lot of what I teach these companies based on the intersection of the scaling up methodology of Vern Harnish, who's been working on that for uh, more than 20 years, probably more than 30 by now. But that's a growth methodology. It's very effective, but it has been developed for growth companies in general. So it's about hotels or consulting companies or even a garbage company. Any company can use that methodology to grow faster. Now, also, of course, we have a lot of the traditional lore, if you will, or the knowledge of Silicon Valley that flows into growth companies. And so my mission here was to really reconcile both, find the golden intersection between that and say, what is the best scaling up advice for tech companies? And so the four levers I look at are followers. So that's essentially people. It's not just Twitter followers, it's all your followers, including your employees and your investors, because in a way that's all you're following and you need to tend to them to make sure they keep following you as a leader, right? And that's the dimension that has to do with, am I still happy with who I have on board? 
we talked about that, but also are they holding themselves accountable? Are they actually performing? And ultimately there's also team dynamics, especially at the leader executive level. Are we trusting each other? Do we have full discussions or are we holding back? Are we holding each other accountable? And are we actually more focused on results than on things like status? And that's of course based on the, what Patrick Lencioni has been teaching us all for many years. Um, then we talked about strategic focus already. So that's, if you will, um, my outcome of what a good strategy should bring to a company. Focus on those areas where you really have a realistic chance of winning and establishing full dominance in that sector. Because it's only a market where you can establish some dominance that over time you can have pricing power, you can decide what you want to build and what you do not want to build. And also where you have a realistic chance of keeping that market over time in the face of new competition. And then the third dimension is follow through. So think of that as the discipline around execution. How do you make sure that you just don't make any plans, but you also execute them? And that becomes a reliable engine. If you, as a leadership team, decide this is our priority for the next quarter, how likely is it that that priority will actually be delivered by the organization? And how much follow-up do you need to do personally as a leader? Or can you just rely on the team delivering the assignment you give to them? This is a key lever, one, to build more trust with investors because you deliver what you tell them. But it's also a key lever in actually liberating the leadership team from the day-to-day follow-up and free them up for spending more time on market-facing activities, on thinking about the future, uh, working on the culture, hiring new people. And so that tending the garden tends to require more time from the executives. A badly run organization, the executives are just busy with delivering on the day-to-day goals of the organization. They don't even have time to tell the employees and their teams what they're supposed to do. You see the executives extremely busy and the frontline employees all go home at 5 p.m. Not their fault, they just didn't get their targets, right? (laughs) I like to turn that around first and make sure that the executives are actually the calm ones with time to think and let the frontliners run around like crazy and do a lot of work for the organization because ultimately it's easier to hire more people of that than of executives. And is that, is that I was going to say a failure, but I, I don't mean that. Is that a learning to delegate that you see as the founders go from sort of startup to scale up? Yes, it's an extremely important lever. And so the delegation itself, I would also place under the following or followers lever, right? So how do you actually turn followers themselves into not just people that say, yeah, 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 to whatever you say, but also people that do stuff for you? And that's surprisingly difficult for many startups and scale-ups. I think it's because the founder in the beginning needs to be so much on top of things to even get through that early phase. If you imagine two, three people in a garage and they're developing a mock-up for a first version of a product, that needs to be pretty much perfect and they need to be in full control of the customer experience in order to get customers to rave about it, in order to get funding, etc. Now, that same person is going to find themselves to be CEO two years later with maybe 100 people reporting to them. How likely is it that they're still a control freak? And how likely is it that they will be effective in that role if they are such a control freak with 100 people reporting to them? It's that change in skill, isn't it? Yes, and that's, I think, the key difficulty that why often a CEO of such a company appreciates an ally so much 
an ally or a coach that helps them see where they need to make changes that they may not see by themselves. Because again, as people, as humans, we love to stick with what we know, what made us successful in the past. And the tragedy on this journey is, guess what? For every mountain, you need a different skill. And the skill that made you successful before is probably the very one that will get you killed on this one. And you know what? One of the things that's just occurred to me when you were talking just then and about George Moore's crossing the chasm is I think it's probably true the first 10 employees are different to the next 90 or definitely different from the next 100. And so the relationship they have with the CEO, the way the organization was, in fact, so the way in which you uh, hire on board and communicate with your Mm -hmm. employees also needs to change. It was just, I was thinking about that with a client that I'm working with at the moment who's gone from sort of 30 to 150 people in a very short space of time. Mm -hmm. Something that could be quarterly now needs to be weekly. That was one of the things where I was able to, from the outside, have that Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked about processes, Dominic, and one of the reasons why I don't want them to write excruciatingly long processes is people think you write it once and then you never have to write it again. But a process that works for 100 people, by definition, will not work for 1,000 people or vice versa, right? So you have to rewrite it anyway. So why take so much trouble to make it absolutely perfect? And only suitable, you know, if it's idiot proof, then ultimately you'll only find idiots that want to work with it anyway, right? Yes. Are there any other key learnings that you, we haven't covered that you... Yeah, the fourth uh, lever would be flow. And flow encompasses both the uh, simple flow of the processes in the organization, but also the flow of cash. So I often work with venture funded companies. So typically they're in a position where they get a lot more cash from their investors than they need at this stage. So they can basically run at a loss for a while, maybe to to conquer market share or just to figure out more things that they need to develop. But still, I think it's important to start building from the outset, awareness of how much is being spent, awareness of where there is at least scope for future efficiency improvements, even if you don't want to prioritize that today. And especially how ultimately the valuation of the company can be really influenced by your management actions. I think in the VC world and the startup world that gets funded by VCs, people are very focused on can I raise the next round and at what valuation it will be. But it's almost like considered like a a storm that they catch or a wave that they catch. Whereas I think that if people just get a little bit of awareness and they start working on the metrics from the outset, even if it's just 1% per quarter, they can make those numbers look vastly different by the time the new round comes around and the valuation will, of course, increase proportionally as well. Yes. As opposed to just thinking we've got loads of money, we'll solve this problem later. Well, yes, and there is some uh, rational aspect to that as well. The reason why the VC invests a lot of money is because they want this company to be very aggressive about conquering the market. And that absolutely remains goal number one. It's given almost in these companies that you will prioritize growth over efficiency. And that's what the investors want. So then you have to follow that and it it makes sense. But that still doesn't make sense that you should try to build additional inefficiency, for example, by launching three, four or five new business lines or products just in the name of growth. Whereas if you gave it a little bit of thought, you would realize actually those are business lines or verticals where we have no competitive advantage. 
where it'll always be an uphill battle. And so we will keep losing money there. Wouldn't it be better if we kept more of our big raised round into actually dominating the area where we are successful? And that's why it ties so closely to the strategic focus. How do you focus your resources on those areas where you actually have a realistic chance of winning and winning for the long term? If you could go back in time, Mm -hmm. what lesson do you know that would be useful to you if you jumped in your time machine? For me personally? Yeah. That's probably one a lot of us learn as we grow a little bit older and we've managed more people and started coaching people that ultimately it's far less effective trying to tell people what to do. It's much more effective to find out where they are and then ask them the right questions. Because I truly believe everyone has all the answers, especially as a team, they have all the answers. What they don't have is the right questions. And so asking people the right questions, relying on their own thinking and their own answers will be far more effective in bringing them to the next level than in just saying, well, I would do this. Because uh-huh. who wants to be told what to do, really? <laughs> yes, indeed. And again, it becomes, it's sort of learned ingrained behavior in, in smaller mm-hmm. organizations where, you know, you're the founder, everyone assumes you know the answers, people come to you for the answer, so you give them the answer, and people learn that parent-child behavior. It's an um, absolute habit cycle, isn't it? I agree yes. with you. Then they have to be deliberate about breaking it if that's what they put in place. Mm -hmm. I often ask CEOs to think of themselves as a clockmaker. Instead of a time teller, they have to make a clock, right? The clock that tells the time for them. And just like, and I'm not talking digital clocks here, I'm talking the old analog part, right? With the mechanics and everything. And so, you know, they imagine that if you're a clockmaker and you, you build it from scratch, then in the beginning, the clock doesn't run at all. And then it runs maybe for a second and then maybe for a minute and you keep tweaking it until it can keep running for 24 hours and it keeps telling the time precisely, right? And then we make an analogy to their organization. Now, how long can you keep your organization running without touching it? Uh-huh. And the answers in the beginning are dramatic, dramatically short. Sometimes it's less than a minute. And that's why they've never taken any holiday. They cannot because indeed the clock will start to stand still, right? Or it will go wildly off track. But if you tell them, hey, let's just start training that muscle where you are not the first to speak, where you sit back a little bit and listen first. That's why I love using these quarterly workshops, the ones they need to do anyway, the, their planning sessions to set the new goals for the quarter as a learning opportunity, not to talk about theory, but just to work on the plan together, and then gradually introduce a few new elements that will make them so much more effective. One of them is asking the CEO not to speak first, asking them to listen first, and then maybe coming with their answer at the end. And this makes a gigantic difference. It's a simple rule, but people are absolutely elated with the results. When I do this the first time, Dominic, with a new team, the CEO is very uncomfortable, but they'll typically give me, give me an opportunity to say, okay, I'll, I'll do you this because I trust you. And then after two hours or so in the workshop, suddenly I see this big smile of relief appearing on their face. And what happened, actually one client even started laughing out loud. And I said, 
why are you laughing? Because this is not a very funny topic, is it? And he's like, no, it's not. But I'm laughing because the discussion my team is just having in front of me are the exact, but to the word, the exact same arguments that were running in my head yesterday evening as I was trying to decide this myself. So now I feel a sense of relief, and it's almost comic relief, if you will, that I'm trusting now that my team will actually come up with the same arguments that I would have had in my head. I do not need to do it all by myself. Oh, fantastic. I can absolutely uh, picture that scene, and, and I think that's a great tip. for. I'll tell you one more. In the afternoon, typically they'll try and take me uh, to the side at a coffee break or something, and they'll say, you know, Roland, the one guy that I thought was my best guy, he hasn't spoken all afternoon. I'm really disappointed in him, you know? And that girl that, or woman that I, I really thought was a bad hire, she's been impressing me so much this whole afternoon. The ideas that come from her, all the optimizations that she suggests, I couldn't have done it at that level. What do you think is happening there? Just creating a totally different dynamic. Fantastic. Totally different dynamic. And he's suddenly starting to realize that he has been favoring the people that are maybe not great leaders. They're just great at sucking up. When he was always the first one talking, the one who always confirms, oh, yeah, you're so right. That's a great saying. Of course they like them. <laughs> who, who doesn't like to be affirmed all the time, right? Now that he doesn't stop talk first, the guy doesn't know what to say anymore. Ah, very good. And you need that insight in order to really have more of an objective feeling around your team and to coach everyone at their own merits as to how they can get better in their roles. Yes. Fantastic. Um, Roland, what book or books should people read? Three if you've got them at the top of your head. And, 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 <laughs> I do. I, will, uh, well, I won't start with my own, but I will say that... No, no, you should, no start with your own. They should definitely read right. your book. What, what's your book? <laughs> Okay, so my own book is uh, Scaling Silicon Valley Style. I wrote it together with Doug Miller, who is uh, who was a common vice president at Rock2 with me. So we've both gone through a number of different scale-ups. And to keep it light, we wrote it in interview style. So it's a very easy read. And it really talks about the first half of the scale-up journey. So after product market fit, all the way to this famous chasm and how to overcome it. And then the second part is due out next year. That'll talk about the later phases of the scale-up journey when you really start going into disrupting and then afterwards um, starting to defend all the uh, conquests that you've added to your portfolio. And the on Amazon and all good booksellers? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's called Scaling Silicon Valley Style, and you will find that it's a very clear green cover written by Roland Sibling and Doug Miller. Those are our names. And uh, the second one, of course, would have to be uh, the book written by Vern Harnish, our growth guru. It's called Scaling Up, and that's the absolute Bible for any growth company. Tech companies will benefit from that too. Of course, I've uh, used a lot of those tools as well, and, and they inspire a lot of the courses and um, sessions that I do. But if you're a tech company, I would definitely complement it with some tech-specific books, either my own or the works of Jeffrey Moore. However, as a third book, I wouldn't mention Jeffrey Moore, even though I love all the work he's done. I would actually recommend the book Multipliers by Liz Wiseman. Uh -huh. And that is because she focuses particularly on that, how are you as a leader to your direct people? 
and it really helps people to do the, the short assessment she has on her website to start and understand, am I actually the great manager I think I am? Or am I essentially micromanaging people or bullying them or trying to mold them too much in my image? Am I great as a manager in actually letting people show all the effectiveness they have inside them without trying to make them do my own bidding in every single detail. And I think that's a gigantic improvement in effectiveness for everyone who has people reporting to them, especially if these people themselves are supposed to be VPs or executives that should have a large scope of responsibility. Ah, fantastic. That's uh, some great recommendations. Roland, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, you're very welcome and I appreciate the invitation. Thank you very much, Dominic. All this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find show notes, additional reading and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pot newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively, not crap, once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting articles I've read, and all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. Social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments. Thanks for listening. <laughs>